Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, where we'll be introduced to perhaps an unfamiliar heroine of the Bible, Rizpah, beginning at verse 1. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years, so David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, it is on account of Saul, and it is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. David asked them, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement? They answered the king, well, as for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us, so that we would have no place in all of Israel, let seven of his descendants be given over to us to be executed. And so the king said, I will give them to you. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Aya's daughter, Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter, Merib. He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who then executed them on a hill before the Lord. Then Rizpah took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest until the rain poured down from the heavens, she did not let the birds touch them by day or animals by night. And when David was told what this Rizpah, a concubine, had done, David responded by bringing the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan and all of those who had been killed and giving them the proper burial that Jewish law prescribed. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, that was a hard piece of scripture to read. And I'm not just talking about the names with eight syllables, but the context itself. And so now I want to invite you to turn to your neighbor to make sure that they're really ready to receive the word. Can you help me out with that? Turn to your neighbor and say, don't pass me any mints. Don't write me any notes. Don't poke me. Don't hunch me. It's time for the word. I need the word. You need the word. That was a weird piece of scripture. But I can talk to you later. Amen. Amen. It's going to make sense as I preach on the theme ripple effects. Ripple effects. Well, church, for the last three months, I have had the incredible privilege of being your pastor. I've preached sermons. I've presided over the communion table. I've baptized babies. I have visited you in the hospital. I've taught Bible studies. I have spilled coffee at meet and greets. I've shared meals in your homes. And I've even officiated my very first wedding in Whitcomb Chapel just a few days ago. And I thought that with all of that time together that you understood me, that I understood you, and that we were building a kinship of trust and belief week after week, month after month. But 
I don't understand what happened last Sunday when a rogue guest preacher told you lies about how we met. And you believed him. He was here for one Sunday. What happened to all those sermons and baptisms and meeting greets and Bible studies and hospital visits? They just went out of the window. And what's worse is that you didn't even have the decency to talk about it behind my back. Instead, you told me face to face or in emails or in handwritten notes, Pastor, I love you, but I believe his side of the story. Now, Bonnie has already led us through prayer time, but I want you to know I am still going to pray for you because clearly this congregation struggles with discernment and judgment. And yet, even though that message was a pack of lies, I can admit there was at least one good part. Several of you have shared how meaningful the concept of reframing or healing painful memories has been for your faith journey. It has already made an impact in your relationships with spouses or children, grandchildren, friends, and most importantly, with God. As one congregant wrote to me, I can already see the ripple effects. And you know, that's really what we honor on All Saints Day and during a stewardship campaign. We recognize the ripple effects, the influence or the impact that people's lives, faith and giving has on our church today. And that's something that we didn't just experience last Sunday. That's something that we even see in this gory piece of scripture from the 21st chapter of 2 Samuel. Here, the newly crowned King David is experiencing famine throughout all of the land. And he goes to God and says, what is going on? What do I have to do to restore fruitfulness to this kingdom? And God says, well, this famine is a result of King Saul's genocide on the Gibeonite people. So in order to settle this score, David approaches the Gibeonite leaders and asks, well, what can I do to right this relationship? And they demand the death of seven of King Saul's descendants, including the sons of a concubine named Rizpah. Now, Rizpah is no Rosa Parks or Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, she's not polite company or the kind of woman that you'd want to invite for family dinner. She's a concubine. She's a woman that society deemed unworthy of marriage, but suitable to be used for the physical pleasure of the king. She possesses no formal education, she rules no territory, and even her physical movements are confined to the palace until the king decides he'd like her company. When Rizpah heard that her sons were to be executed, she should have gone quietly into the night. She should have done nothing said nothing, kept her head down, and sought only to protect her lowly position in the kingdom. 
But rather than respond the way that her place prescribes, Rispa does something different. Rispa moves. She walks about three miles to the place where her sons are hanging, and she decides that she's going to stand watch. Now, the text does not indicate that she had some profound political plot in mind by her movement. It does not say that she contacted the local newspaper, posted on Facebook, or tweeted under the handle hashtag RizpaWatch. What is clear is that Rizpa is an unremarkable woman who is willing to respond. And yet perhaps, perhaps that's the good news of the text. That creating ripple effects doesn't require that we be remarkable. It only requires that we respond. In fact, the people that God uses throughout biblical history were hopelessly human and unremarkably unremarkable. They were not supermodels or superheroes or super saints. Actually, the one who led God's people through the wilderness had an anger management problem, if you ask me. The one who slayed a giant, well, he couldn't conquer his wandering eye. And the one who protected God's spies in the wilderness, she was a lady of the night. And the one whom Jesus called the rock on which I will build my church, he was the first one to forsake his faith. What all these men and women have in common is not their remarkable resumes or favor from God, but rather their willingness to respond to what was happening around them. That's how we create ripple effects. And while we may not have to be remarkable, Rispa teaches us that we do have to be committed. When Rispa breaks out of the palace at the beginning of the famine, scholars teach us that the passage of time was five months. That means that for 20 weeks or 150 days, Rispa withstood the elements of the wilderness. She shivered in the cold, she sweated in the heat, and she battled the animals who sought her family members. Can you imagine the hollow in her cheeks, the dirt underneath her fingernails, and the determination in her eyes? I have no doubt that at some point, Rispa wanted to give up. Perhaps it was when she realized that one week had become one month followed by four more. Perhaps it was when she realized that she had given up the comforts of palace life and now made her bed on a rock in the wilderness. But you see, despite her doubts and in the face of fear, Rispa remained resolute on that rock. Because from her vantage point, Rispa could not only see what commitment was costing her, but she could also see all of the people watching her in the valley below. And like the people in Jerusalem beholding this one-woman revolutionary, people all over Noblesville 
are watching to see if what we say we believe influences how we behave. For the truth is, we often abandon opportunities to respond because it costs too much. It costs too much of our time that could be spent elsewhere. It costs too much of our convenience because when we respond, we never see results overnight. And yet the greatest influence that we have on this generation and the next generation of saints is not what we say, but what we do to demonstrate who we are. In other words, the world is less interested in our lip service and more influenced by our lifestyle. They're looking to see if this stewardship is a campaign or it's a faithful commitment. They're looking to see if open hearts, open minds, and open doors is a motto or it's a movement. They're looking to see if Noblesville First is an inclusive faith community that embraces all people with no exceptions is a tagline or this is our truth. Because here it is. This is a tall order to live who we say we are by giving sacrificially of our time, our talent, and our treasure. But we can be encouraged today. We can take our sackcloth and stand on the rocks that God is calling each of us to because our response has ripple effects. You see, when Rispa responds to this unjust execution, she could never have anticipated the results. She may have begun her vigil with the hopes that her sons would receive a proper burial. Yet when those who were watching in the valley told King David what she was up to, he responded unexpectedly. Upon hearing of her actions, David gives her sons a proper burial, but he doesn't stop there. He reclaims the bodies of Saul and Jonathan, giving all of them the dignified burials that were dependent on their accessing the afterlife. You see, Rizpah's response may have been narrowly focused on her sons, but it created ripples far beyond her rock. And that ought to encourage us this morning that when we commit to responding sacrificially to the challenges of the world, it has ripple effects far beyond our limited place. And that's not just a biblical lesson from the life of Rizpah. It's one that I have learned is just as true now as it was thousands of years ago. You see, Caldwell Gross is not the last name that I was given. Caldwell and Gross are both of my husband's last names. And after 12 years of marriage, you would think I would be over it, but I'm still a little salty about it. (laughs) But that's another sermon, perhaps entitled, It's Too Late Now. (laughs) You see, my last name, my maiden name is Tuma. 
It is a Cameroonian name that was given to me by my father who was born in Bamenda, Cameroon. He is the son of George and Cecilia Tuma. And my grandmother, Cecilia, was the proud mother of five boys and three girls. She was an uneducated woman. She never set foot into a classroom. In fact, I can remember her coming to the U.S. and and reading and writing letters for her on her behalf. Yet one day, my grandmother was presented with her own rock of ripple effects. You see, my grandfather's business had started to flourish, and he was now in a position to educate his children. And he told my grandmother that at the beginning of the next school year, that all of the boys would be going to school. And my grandmother was so excited. She was going to be the mother of educated children. But then she was disturbed because my grandfather's plan had excluded her daughters. Now, don't get me wrong. It's it's not that he was a bad guy. It's just that in Cameroon in the 1950s, women's educations were really not on anybody's radar. But yet my grandmother, an uneducated, unremarkable West African woman, responded. She told my grandfather that her daughters should be educated too. And until he agreed, she would no longer cook. (laughs) Now, like Rizpa, she did not see immediate results. Her campaign seemed to go largely unnoticed as my grandfather began eating at the tables of friends or even local restaurants, but she stayed committed and people around the village began to talk. No smoke was coming out of the Tuma house, and something was going on. Mr. Tuma was looking thin, and maybe his businesses were not doing as well as he says. Maybe we should invest elsewhere if he can't even feed his own family. Well, I'm not sure what their conversation eventually entailed. I am a witness to the ripple effects of her responding. For that year, all of her children, including her daughters, went to school. But it didn't stop there. You see, over the next 50 years, her cooking cutoff created eight medical doctors, six surgeons, seven nurses, three PhDs, and 16 master's degrees. Now, I don't believe that this was her plan when she put her pots and pans away. But you see, when we respond, God takes what we do today and creates ripple effects that blesses this generation, the next generation, and the generation to come. When we sacrifice, we join the ranks of saints whose influence can still be felt right now. So what does this mean for us today? It means that God is calling us to respond, to give, to sacrifice, to take out our own sackcloth and lay it down on our rocks. For when we do, we ripple God's justice, 
mercy, grace, and love out into the world. And somebody will feel it.